1: Notre Dame fans, welcome back to a special edition of the Irish Breakdown podcast. My name is Brian Driscoll, I'm the publisher at irishbreakdown.com, and this is our special edition Notre Dame mailbag. So, this is uh, being done because this past week I promised that we would be doing a Sunday mailbag because we weren't able to get all the questions we had on Friday because of several different events popping up that we did not anticipate, so our show didn't go as long. Well, I forgot that Saturday Sunday was Father's Day. So, of course, our Breakdown staff was spending time with their families on Father's Day, as they should. And so what I wanted to do was have a special edition mailbag where we were able to kind of answer some of those questions that people had. Well, then, of course, last night, right when I'm about to record, our power goes out again. And so I didn't get that back until it was too late to do a show. So we're doing it now, even though it's later than I anticipated. We're going to get it done, and I think it's going to be a great a great show because there were some really excellent questions. So how we're going to do this is we're going to kind of go Notre Dame team questions. And then part two of the show will be recruiting questions. And we're going to draw from questions that were posted on the Irish Breakdown Premium Board, the Champions Lounge. And then we'll answer some questions that were posed on Twitter as well. So we'll go the Irish Breakdown members first. Then we'll go Twitter questions second. Some of those are also Irish Breakdown. Uh, members, but they were posed on Twitter. So go we'll team first, recruiting second, and, and have some great stuff. And, of course, we're going to have a very, very, very busy week this week as well. So let's start things off with Napping Boomer asked a question about the team. And he said, do you think the fact that we have an offensive coordinator who's been in that position for the last two years, who who has a trusted advisor who is also his father, and a very experienced defensive coordinator with all his past head coaching experience, plus recent experience making – uh, on the fly NFL adjustments will make Marcus Freeman's ad- adapt- adaptation to head coach much easier. To my mind, the team he has assembled needs to be touted both f- to the fans and, by extension, to themselves, so they they enter the season with great confidence. There will be stumbles, but we all want them to uh, to make want them to feel like they have the chops. I don't really care about feelings, to be honest with you. I mean, feelings only last with the first time you get hit in the mouth you're either confident or you're not, there's not, it's not an emotional feeling. And I think this was an issue, you know, in in previous teams is they weren't necessarily prepared to where they had supreme confidence in those, in those instances. So when when they got into those moments and they did get hit in the mouth a little bit, they weren't prepared, whether it was the coaching, wasn't prepared, which is more often the case than, than the players, but there were times when the players were prepared. I think, I think to the, the question, however, I think Marcus Freeman's staff was put together very intentionally and it's, you know, the offensive coordinator aspect of it. I, I, you know, I I think if Marcus Freeman was hired at Notre Dame and and had no clue who Tommy Reese was, maybe he would have looked to want to bring in his own offensive coordinator, but they hadn't worked together for the last year. Everything I've been told is there is a great, great amount of respect between the two. So it makes sense that he would want to do that. And of course you still have someone on staff who understands Notre Dame really better than anybody else you're going to have because he was a player here and he's been a part of the coaching staff for really the, since the 2017 season when he first took over as the quarterback's coach. And then, of course, the last two years in his role as offensive coordinator. So I think that was obviously intentional. Then you talk about the hiring of Al Golden, which I thought was just a, a real, said a lot about Marcus Freeman as a coach, that he's going to hire someone who's much older than he is in his 50s. I'm sure Coach Golden wouldn't appreciate me saying that he's much older than Coach Freeman. But he's someone who has a lot of experience, someone who's been a head coach at a big-time institution at the University of Miami, someone who came from the NFL, someone who's going to have a big reputation, who's going to have a lot of strong ideas, who's going to have a lot of strong opinions on the side of the ball that Coach Freeman made his living. There aren't a lot of coaches that I can think of at a young age who would have the confidence in themselves to say, I'm going to bring in that type of person. So I, I think that was big. I think bringing in out Washington, someone that Marcus Freeman knows he's coached with, who's also talented, wants to be a head coach, was interviewing for SECD coordinator jobs a year ago, bringing in Harry Hestan and all that he stands for and his experience, you know, bringing in Dylan McCullough, another veteran coach who's going to have a lot of strong opinions on things. It shows me that you know, and then, of course, bringing in Jared Parker, someone he he trusts, someone he's known, someone he's worked with for several years, someone that I would assume that he's friends with off the field as well. And then, of course, the one unknown was Chancey Stuckey, Brian Mason, the special teams coordinator, also someone Marcus Freeman has, has worked with. I think if you look at the staff as a whole, outside of Chancey Stuckey, who's a, a somewhat of an unknown, has only really coached for one year, this is a very experienced, proven staff you have guys that have been head coaches, whether it be interim head coaches like, uh, like Jared Parker, whether it's be longtime veteran assistants like Harry Heastan and to a lesser degree, just because he's not quite as old, Dylan McCullough, Al Golden. And then of course, people that he knows and trusts like Al Washington and and, and people like that. So I think this staff was put together in really impressive fashion. And one of the coaches I had the biggest question marks about, Chancy Stuckey, so far has been one of the most productive when you look at the job he did with the receivers in the spring, plus the job he's doing on the recruiting trail. So, so far, the results have been excellent from a recruiting standpoint. Now it comes down to the team standpoint, which is what your question is more geared towards. And I think, I think the manner in which the staff was put together was intentional. It's a combination of experience and, and also the youthful energy. It's a combination of people he doesn't know but has a high reputation for based on what others have said about them. That would be obviously Harry Heastan. He doesn't know Harry Heastan, never coached with or against Harry Heastan. He doesn't know Al Golden from that standpoint, never coached against Al Golden. But the reputations obviously speak for themselves. So I, I really like the manner in which Coach Freeman put this staff together. I, I, you know, it, it's there's really it, it's a really talented group. And it's a group that I think should rightfully give this team and this program, a lot of confidence going into the season. And that's where a lot of my confidence comes from. I mean, there's a lot of questions about, you know, what Marcus Freeman is going to be from a you know, standpoint of, you know, does he have the experience to, you know, to, to lead this team? Well you know how will the, mis- the, the first year coaching issues kind of happen, you know, handle that? Will those cause the team to lose games? There's like other kind of things which we don't know. I can't answer that definitively because I've never seen him coach a game really with the staff at he once. But a big part of my confidence is not only just trust in what coach Freeman's done so far as a coordinator and how that translates, some of the things he's done already as the head coach, But it's also a lot about the confidence in the staff he's hired, which is one of the most important things the head coach can do, and is one of my biggest criticisms of the the previous coach, was just not putting together the kind of staff that you need to really compete at the highest level. And so far, from what we can tell and, and what coaches have done in the past, Marcus Freeman has certainly done that.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate
1: with defensive linemen getting more Heisman love the past ten years, he refers to Jadavian Clowney, Chase Young, uh, Jordan Hutchison, all finishing the top ten. Jordan Davis from Georgia all finishing the top ten. Do you think there is any chance an offensive lineman start that any chance offensive linemen start getting the respect they deserve and begin to crack the top ten occasionally? No, nah, I don't think so. Now I'm trying to remember if if or I'm going to look this up as we're kind of talking, but I, I'm trying to remember like uh, Orlando Pace would have been a guy that would have been about the only chance that I think a guy would have had to to be a Heisman finalist. I'm going to look up and see if he finished there. That would So, yeah, Eddie George and Bobby Hoying finished in the top ten that year. A year later, Orlando Pace finished fourth. So we've seen that before. It doesn't happen very often, and, and I don't expect it to be something we see often. I think a couple of reasons why. Number one is offensive linemen don't really have – things statistically that you can point to and say wow what a great year like you can for defensive players with tackles for loss sacks tackles interceptions pass breakups and all those type of things like we were talking about and sue in the year that he was a a heisman finalist finished in the top five he, he had like 85 tackles like 20 and a half tackles for loss 12 sacks he had like 10 pass breakups 10 pass breakups uh, an interception, like 19 quarterback hurries. It was just, I mean, insane numbers. But you had numbers you could kind of point to and say, wow, what a what a great year. And you really don't have that with offensive linemen. I think the other factor is there's a lot of offensive linemen re- awards already. And you've got like, you know, Lombardi, Outland, Remington are all different awards on an offensive lineman can win. And so I, I just don't think that's a position that, that and let, let's be honest too, the the Heisman trophy is is a is a media creation if we're being honest that's why it's usually a running back receiver quarterback on a team that's really good uh, one of the better teams in the country it's it's a it's a hype thing so you know maybe if we get another Orlando Pace type of guy but i mean if quentin nelson can't even can't even get enough love to win the awards you know the the outland i mean he you're just it's it's going to be hard it's not anytime soon if we see that Until like think like perhaps like down the road, if like offensive line statistics become more prominent, you know, pancakes, touchdown blocks, things like that start becoming more prominent. And and those are subjective to a degree, like with touchdown blocks or big blocks or dominating blocks or whatever. That would be the only thing that I think would would maybe give them a chance to fall into that category. James Lawrence 37 asks, do you think they will move someone to wide receiver in camp? Or do you think they're content with only seven scholarship receivers for the season? Also will Wilkins be in Davis be ready for week one. I think at the present moment, I don't see Notre Dame moving anyone to wide receiver and look, and I get it. I understand why there's an, an un, a thought that you can, but here, here's the problem. Let's take Xavier Watts, for example, who's, who's a, very talented player. I, you, everyone knows my opinion on him and, and I'm using him on purpose because everybody always knows that I've always wanted Xavier Watts to be a wide receiver at Notre Dame. I think he could play Notre Dame. The, the problem is he's battling for a, a key rotation spot at safety and if you were to move him to receiver you're moving him to a position where there's not really a need for rotation guys a receiver. I mean you've got you've got like you mentioned Avery Davis and Joe Wilkins, if they're healthy. And, and my understanding is, is that Avery Davis will be ready uh, for the season. I'm not sure yet on Joe Wilkins simply because I just haven't heard anything about updates on him, so I, I I don't know the answer to that. But Avery, I anticipate being ready for the opener. You've got him whenever Joe Wilkins comes back. Those are the veterans. You've got Braden Lindsey. You've got Lorenzo Styles, You've got Deion Coles. You've got Jane Thomas. And you've got incoming freshman Tobias Merriweather point being numbers are thin you've only got like you mentioned seven scholarship receivers Matt Salerno is also a scholarship receiver but he's in a little bit of a different category I understand there's not a need for guys to come in and impact the depth chart per se the need is for depth you don't move a guy like Xavier Watts for example to receiver just to give depth You don't move a guy that, like, you know, Ramon Henderson's a guy that could play receiver. You don't move a guy like that for depth when he's battling for a starting job somewhere else. That's the problem. I think the only chance that there could be to move someone to receiver for depth would be someone like a Jabron Payne. Incoming freshman, you know, probably going to be five out of five at running back, four out of four early on with the injury to Logan Diggs, which raises another problem. You know, I could, I can make a case that, that Jabron Payne has a lot of theoretic in him, And I've, are, I've talked about this before on this, on this platform and written about this, where he's a guy that I do, do think can bring some slot abilities to the table, you know, with bubble screens, with other type of quick routes, he catches the ball. Well, he's a good route runner for a running back. He, he has some Kyron Williams in him in that regard, a little taller than Kyron was. We don't know about his injury, his, you know, his injury status, his health status, because he's basically missed most of the last two years with injuries. And he wasn't very effective in 2021 when he was healthy uh, or was on the field, I should say. But then you get into a situation where because of the injury to Logan Diggs, can you, can you move Jabron Payne to, to receiver? And now you only have three healthy running backs. Maybe once Logan Diggs comes back and healthy and whenever that may be, you could consider doing that, but, but, I think what you'll find and what you'll see more so than that is I think some of us focus too much on wide receiver. And the way that Notre Dame runs their offense is they're tw- they can go 12 personnel and do all the pass stuff that they want to do. And when you have a guy like Michael Mayer, for example, it gives you some options. So let's say you're going to go with your small lineup. You're going to go with Lorenzo Styles, Brayden Lindsay, and Avery Davis, for example. There's not a true boundary receiver in that group, although I would like to see some snaps where Lorenzo Styles gets that chance in the boundary. I wouldn't mind seeing Braden Lindsay get some snaps into the boundary, especially when the tight end is the, to that side because you can put the tight end on the line in a two-by-two, two, have Braden Lindsay off the line, motion him down, do some stack stuff where you get him kind of uh, going across the field on crossers and drags and posts and things like that where you know, he could be effective on those type of concepts. You can move Michael Mayer into the boundary. And that's kind of where I was going with it, where he could kind of be your W per se. And then you have the three faster guys to the field that present some opportunities. But out of 12 personnel, there's a lot of different things that Notre Dame can do. They can go two tight ends, whether it's Mitchell Evans or Kevin Bowman or Kane Barong, who I think presents some really unique pass game opportunities. If he's healthy, he's been cleared recently to kind of start doing some agilities. He should be ready to go by fall camp. And so he brings some unique things. I'm keeping an eye on him. There's Eli Raritan when he gets back from his knee injury. And I'm, I mean, he seems to be doing great ahead of schedule. He should be ready to go from by fall camp based on everything he's involved in, holding Stace. You know, so that's, I mean, that's six more pass catchers right there that you can use to do everything that you're going to ask a, a fifth, sixth receiver to do if you were to move somebody. Then there's cross training, some running backs. So instead of moving Jabron Payne to, to receiver, you have Jabron Payne and Chris Tyree and, and Jadarian Price doing some things out of your 21 personnel, you know, where maybe you, or your 20 personnel where you put a second back in the game and they have a, a small repertoire where you can put them in the slot and run some jet sweeps, run some, you know, some, obviously there's the screen concepts, but, you know, you can run them on crossing routes. You can run them on five yard quick out. You can run them on seam, some of those guys on seam routes. So there's so many things that you can do. With multiple personnel groupings and twelve personnel, twenty personnel, twenty one personnel where you get a second tight end on the field, a second running back on the field, uh, sometimes even a third tight end on the field in certain situations. if you're gonna you know try to try to get throw teams off or act like you're gonna run the ball, maybe run the ball a couple times, and then boom, you know you boom them out. Boom is when you know is a, a call where you, you know you, you line up in a tight formation and then all of a sudden everybody it quickly spreads out when you have pass catchers like Cain Brown and Michael Mayer, tight end and Eli Raritan and Holden Stace and guys like that, uh, you can do some things with them that you can't do with a quote unquote traditional tight end. So I don't think there's the need that people that others do for receiver simply because you're going to get more from those tight ends and those backs than you will from trying to convert someone late to receiver and then you're also not doing right by that player that you'd be converting because you're not necessarily helping him on his long-term pro, you know, prognosis and, and projection either. So I think the 12 personnel, the 21 personnel are going to be a better route for Notre Dame in the short term uh, as they build up their receiver depth chart. Now, if you start having a bunch of injuries at receiver, m- more than two, then you may have to say, hey, look, Xavier, we got to move you. But you're moving him then to play. You're not moving him to be a depth piece. You'd be moving him to play, and that would be the difference. Omaha Josh has a college football question, which I think is a really good one I wanted to get in here. It says, Brian, do you look at this season as a down season in college football, similar to last year, that is ready for the taking from several teams or more uh, of an on-par year with talent and competition amongst only a few heavyweights? I think there's a third option, and I, th- I, I don't think those are the only two options. I don't think it's down year where the, the heavyweights aren't as good, like last year. Last year was that year. It was a down year in that regard. I don't think the only alternative is, okay, the heavyweights are good and everybody else is not in contention. I think another year in which it's a strong year in college football, and I think this is going to be a strong year in college football. I thought last year was going to be a down year. I think we saw that play out. I mean, Notre Dame almost made the college football playoff with zero wins over a top 25 team. I mean, that tells you kind of how last year was. If Georgia beats Alabama in the SEC title game, Notre Dame's in the playoff at 11-1 and one with, with, like as I said, no wins over top 25 teams. I think that speaks volumes to how last season went. Ohio State wasn't as good. Clemson wasn't as good. Even Georgia, who won the national championship, I mean, I looked at teams they've had in the past, especially the 2017 team, and I'm thinking that team wasn't as, even as good as that team. You know, and you look at like last year's Georgia and stack them up against like twenty twenty Bama wouldn't have been a wouldn't have been competitive twenty nineteen LSU twenty eighteen Clemson, and and so it, that's what I mean by down year. This year, I actually think some of those teams are going to be better. I think Ohio State's going to be better than they were last year. Clemson's going to be better than they were last year. Although I don't think they're going to be vintage Clemson. I don't I I don't know if that is going to exist anymore. At least not the way that it did from sixteen to to 19 really I think but I think they're going to be better I think we're going to see some teams obviously Bama's going to be good Georgia's going to be good I think we're going to see some teams kind of rise up I think Georgia, I think Texas is going to be better this year I'm not saying they're going to be national championship contention because being a good year in college football doesn't just mean everyone's a national title contention it just means the the leagues are more competitive there's there's more potential for upset you know, you look at Texas, I think they're going to be better. Are they going to be good enough to beat Bama? I doubt it, but I'm really looking forward to seeing that game. You know, it wasn't that long ago, 2019, when LSU won the title, that uh, the team that gave them arguably the toughest game out, maybe, maybe Auburn, but the other option is Texas, who almost knocked off that LSU team, lost by a touchdown. It was a, a great game, a great battle between Joe Burrow and Sam Erlinger. So I think, you know, I think Oklahoma's going to still be good. I think they're going to be better defensively under Brent Venables. I love the Jeff Levy hire. I think Oregon, we'll see what they're going to do. The Pac-12, the big unknown. I know everybody's hyping up USC, but but I still got to see it. I think at the, in the SEC, Florida's going to be better this year. At Tennessee, I'm really looking forward to see what Tennessee can do in year two under Josh Heupel. Everybody's hyping up how good Texas A&M is going to be. If they, If they're right on that, then that makes the SEC West a lot more competitive. So I just think, and then I think Notre Dame's going to be really good. So I just think overall in college football, I look around and I see a lot of teams that are on the on on the ascent. I think over the last couple of years, some powerhouse programs, traditional powerhouse programs have made some really good hires. I think Penn State's going to be better this year, but to the uh, the previous point, you know, I, love what Sarke- I love the hire of Sarkeesian. I think he needed a year to change the culture. We'll see if that takes off this year. I, I think Miami made a really strong hire with with Mario Cristobal. I think Manny Diaz was a terrible hire uh, for Miami. I think Mario Cristobal inherits some, some talent, but they're going to be much better coach talent. He's going to bring toughness there because that's one thing that Oregon had for the most part, although the way they played against Utah a couple times last year troubled me. But that's not normally how a Mario Cristobal team plays. So I, I just think it's going to be a fun year of college football, and and I don't think it's going to be a down year. I don't. I'm not saying that that means that we're going to see teams other than Ohio State, Notre Dame, Alabama, Georgia, Clemson. You know the typical teams we see in contention for the playoff. I think that's probably still going to be the case. Maybe an Oklahoma sneaks in there, but it doesn't mean it's not going to be a great year in college football. And, and I think what we're what, what a great year can also mean is even if it's the same normal teams that we see. It's not a bunch of undefeated teams because that's the thing that's kind of been shown that it hasn't been great is there's been a lot of undefeated teams getting in the last three, four years. You look at 2018 when Notre Dame made it in, they were, I think, the three seed. They were three of they're one of three teams that were undefeated. You hadn't had more than like one undefeated team in almost every year of the college football playoff up until that point in time. So I think we're going to see more of that than, than anything else this year. And I think it's going to be a really fun year of college football. Jay Sario asks, I was wondering how you would compare each position group unit for Notre Dame versus Ohio State, specifically if there are any areas where Notre Dame has an advantage or if you think Ohio State has a big advantage somewhere. Thanks. Well, there are two ways to look at this. One is to just kind of stack up the rosters next to each other and say who's better here, who's better there. And, and that's a fun endeavor. And then the other way is to kind of look at matchups, you know, O-line versus D-line. So we'll, we'll do it quickly, just kind of go through both ways. Maybe look at quarterback. I think that's obviously an advantage of Ohio State. I think they have not only the, the better starter, the proven starter, they have very good depth. I, I like the young quarterback that they have who played a little bit last year. I think Devin Brown's a little overrated, but, you know, he's a decent player and he's your third or fourth quarterback. Running back, I, I like Notre Dame's depth better than Ohio State's, but Travion Henderson is significantly better than anybody else has. So if you're looking starter, starter, it's Ohio State. If you're looking depth, it's Notre Dame. But that starter part is really, really important. Wide receiver, right now, I'd give the edge to Ohio State. Obviously, Jackson Smith and Jig was better than anybody Notre Dame has. They have very good depth. I think Notre Dame's depth is going to is going to be better than people think. But it 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 would be unwise and and very homerish if I was going to start trying to say, oh no, 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 they're as good as Ohio State. I think Ohio State has the best receiving core in the country coming back. So that's where you start to see some Ohio State have some big advantages. Notre Dame, huge advantage of tight end. I think Notre Dame has the advantage of the offensive line as well. I think they have more talent top to bottom than Ohio State does on the offensive line. So offensively, Ohio State has the advantage of quarterback with CJ Stroud. They also have very good depth. They have the they have the advantage when it comes to the top of the running back depth chart. I like Notre Dame's depth better, but advantage Ohio State there they have an advantage at receiver, a significant one if you're going you're to include the top level player plus the projected talent of the others. But I think that the depth is where Notre Dame can close the gap. You know, if guys like Lorenzo Styles and Bray Lindsey and Deion Coles and Tobias Merriweather can be the players, I think they can be. The gap won't be as large in practice as it is right now on paper. Tight end, big advantage Notre Dame, O-line, advantage Notre Dame. Not by a ton, but advantage Notre Dame defensively this is where it's kind of the opposite story for me defensive line I think Notre Dame has a better defensive line now I know Ohio State has a bunch of five-star players but Isaiah Fosky has had more sacks last year than the top four returning starter or top four returning defensive linemen for Ohio State defensive ends for Ohio State and if you take recruiting rankings, and this is like a silly tweet that I saw the other day where they were comparing the Ohio State receivers to the Notre Dame DBs and they just use recruiting rankings. I like think Julian Fleming's a five star. Julian Fleming's done nothing at Ohio State. They have Cam Hart like he's the number 600 something player in the country. Does anyone still think that's who Cam Hart is? That's a silly comparison. And that's for people who really don't know football and don't have a way to make an argument based on evaluation. They just pull silly, you know, arbitrary things like recruiting rankings and act like that just means what a guy's going to be. But if you look at talent, if you look at production, if you look at what they've actually done on the field, Notre Dame has a significant advantage over Ohio State on the defensive line. Maybe that changes, kind of like what we talked about receiver with, uh, with with Notre Dame. The defensive line could be the flip of that now that they have a better defensive coordinator. Linebacker, advantage Notre Dame, significant advantage for Notre Dame. Even with some of the issues Notre Dame had last year, I'll take J.D. Bertrand over anybody. Ohio State's trotting out there. I'll take Jack Kaiser over most of the guys that Ohio State has had. And I'll definitely take a healthy Maris Louisville over anybody that Ohio State has. And then, of course, Notre Dame has a great freshman linebacker class, as does Ohio State. So those kind of negate each other. But when you look at the veterans, it's not even close. Notre Dame has a significantly better linebacker situation than Ohio State. Safety, it's close. I think Ohio State has more proven players. They have more guys, and I'm like, okay, that guy has done this, that guy has done that, whereas I, you know, some of Notre Dame's proven players haven't played that well, D.J. Brown, Houston Griffith. I like the young up-and-coming talent that Notre Dame has with, with Rowan Henderson and Xavier Watt, so there's a little bit of uncertainty and projection for Notre Dame or Ohio State. It's like, well, I know who they are. I don't know how much better they're going to be, but I know who they are. I call that a bit of a wash. The reason is, is Ohio State has more guys that I know who they are Notre Dame doesn't. I think the, the the reason I say Wash maybe slight advantage of Notre Dame is the fact that I think the upside of Notre Dame's players is higher, plus the presence of Brandon Joseph, who was a, a consensus All American two years ago, played against Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship game, had an interception in the end zone of Justin Fields in that game as well. So I'd say Wash maybe a slight advantage of Notre Dame, but but again, I I think that at some point the the proven nature of what the safeties of Ohio State have done, and they're not proven to be great, they're just they're just solid gives them an advantage. And then a cornerback, that's the interesting one. So I know most people are going to go Ohio State. I'm not. I'm not impressed with Ohio State's corners. I know Denzel Burke's a good player. He's got a lot to prove to me. Cam Smith gets a lot of love. Not sure why. Cam Hart's the best corner of of either of those groups. I'm going Wash because I think, again, Ohio State has more guys that have kind of proven to be solid players. I think Notre Dame has better depth. So secondary-wise, it's a bit of a wash to me. I think Notre Dame, however, in my opinion, has the two best players in Cam Hart and and Brandon Joseph. I think Ohio State has more guys that have proven that they can be at least solid players, but they struggled last year. That's an area where you expect Jim Knowles' presence to make them better, and, and so that should help. But I think Notre Dame still has the two best players. So quarterback, advantage Ohio State. Running back, advantage Ohio State. Receiver, advantage Ohio State. Tight end, advantage Notre Dame. Offensive line, advantage Notre Dame. Defensive line, advantage Notre Dame. Linebacker, advantage Notre Dame. And then secondary, wash. So for me, that's four for Notre Dame, three for Ohio State, and then two that are a wash, safety corner, uh, if you put them all as a, as a secondary. The thing that I would where I would give Ohio State an advantage to, to kind of maybe tie this thing up a little bit is I have a lot of concerns about Notre Dame's operation when it comes to the kicking operation. I'm very concerned about Notre Dame's punting and in, in, in place kicking situation. And and you know Ohio State to me, you know, they have some questions as well. I'm actually looking up to see if this if their kicker came back. I know he was listed as a senior last year, but as we all know those things because of COVID, those things are a little bit jacked up. Yeah, so Noah Ruggle's is is still on their roster, so that to me gives Ohio State an advantage there. He was a a steady player last year, 20 of 21 on field goals, 74 of 74 on extra points. Doesn't have a strong leg, but he's got a consistent leg, a steady leg, which I think is something that Notre Dame doesn't have right now, obviously. So I would give them the advantage and then of course their punters back, so I would give Ohio State an advantage when it comes to the kicking operation. The return game both have some talent, both are inconsistent coverage wise. I'd probably give a slight edge to Notre Dame based on what I saw last year, but they're going to both be athletic and long and and have talented players running down there. So a lot of it depends on, you know, just the coaching aspect, but that's, that's one where I'd give an advantage to Ohio state. So I, I think Notre Dame stacks up a lot better than people think. And I think a big part of the reason why a lot of people don't think Notre Dame stacks up is simply because of recruiting. I think people look at five star here, not five star there. So they must be better when in reality, Notre Dame's non-five-star, non-top 100 recruits have been significantly better college football players than the five-star kids from Ohio State. Got a couple over-unders, which we'll rock out here real quick, from Florida Irishman, So we got three of them from him. His first, well, one question, then two over-unders. His first question is, could this be the best safety tandem since Harrison Smith and Zeke Mata? Well, I would argue that the 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 best safety tandem, if we're just talking about a one-two, Zeke Mott and Harrison Smith never started together. At least, didn't very often. The starter in 2011, with Harrison Smith, was actually Jamar Slaughter. Now, they had a really good trio back then, and I think that was a, a really good group. I think the 2018 tandem of Alohi Gilman and Jalen Elliott was really good. None of them were as good as Harrison Smith was in 2000 and 2011, but I think that. The number two in 2018 was definitely better than the number two and number three in 2011. So those are the two best. I'm I'm not ready to go there yet, to be honest with you. I mean, obviously, Brandon Joseph is going to be a really good player. But Ramon Henderson, Xavier Watts, Houston Griffith, DJ Brown, all four of those guys have major question marks for me. Obviously, Xavier and Ramon have the physical talent. Houston and DJ have the experience, but all four have a lot to prove. And, and I know that Ramon did some nice things last year, but look, teams are going to have film with him now. They're going to be able to kind of nitpick his game a little bit more. He's going to have to continue improving. He can't just be the guy he was last year. He's got to get better. So could it be end up being a really good safety tandem? Sure, it could be, but it's got a lot to prove. I need to see it before I can start touting it with the groups like the 2018 group. Uh, the 2019 group was pretty good too. You had uh, you had Alohi Gilman, Zav- uh, Jalen Elliott, and then you also had Kyle Hamilton as a freshman rotating in as well. So that two-year safety play for Notre Dame with Alohi Gilman, Jalen Elliott, uh, and then of course in 2019 with with uh, Kyle Hamilton was really really good. This group has a ways to go before it's to the level of the 2018 safety tandem, in my opinion. I have an over under. Over-under on Tyler Buckner, 3,600 total yards and 26 touchdowns. The 3,600 total yards is going to be a little bit more of the – let's see where that one goes. Obviously, he's got to stay healthy. I think that's going to be a big thing. So, you know, we've talked about, you know, maybe he has 2,800 to uh, 3,000 passing yards, you know, 6 to 800 rushing yards. I think that gets you close to 3,600. If he stays healthy for 13 games, I'm going to go over for Buckner unless Notre Dame is just destroying people and he's playing two and a half quarters for a bunch of games. I'm going to go slightly over, but I'm not feeling great about that just because I think that you're going to see a lot of run game production from other guys that you know, as he has success running, that's going to open up run game opportunities for Chris Tyree and the other backs that that he's impacting the game. He's just not getting the yards, which could maybe take him under. And and he still has a lot to prove to me as a passer. I think the talent's there for him as a passer. I just got to see it. In college, that's really the thing for me. The twenty-six touchdowns, I'm easy. If he's healthy, he, that's over. If Tyler Buckner plays at least twelve games this year, I'll be shocked if he's not over on to, twenty-six total touchdowns. I, I think he'll be in the thirties, in my opinion. But that's a good one. Second over under over under on two and a half players with ten sacks. I'm going to go under. I don't. I think this team is going to, at the most, have two guys with ten sacks. I I wouldn't be shocked if it's only one. I just don't see like you know, I mean, maybe Maris as a linebacker gets ten sacks. Maybe Riley Mills, maybe Jason Adamiola. Maybe I mean, and and the 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 maybes is why I don't think it's going to happen. And and I think that like look at last year for example, Notre Dame had the most sacks in a season last year that they've had in a long time. Certainly the most of the Brian Kelly area and era, and it wasn't close. So last year Notre Dame had forty one sacks. The year before thirty one, and then it was thirty four, which was tied for the team TMI thirty four in two thousand eighteen. 24, 14, 24, that's the Bram and Gord era, 26, 21, the 2012 team had 33, 25, and, and then 26, so 41 was significantly higher, they only had one guy that had more than five, let's look at where Notre Dame stacked up last year in sacks, they ranked 12th last year in sacks, total sacks, they ranked 12th in sacks per game, so that's pretty good, and they had one guy that had more than that had more than five. And obviously that was Isaiah Foskey. And, and so when you look at the team that led the nation in sacks per game, that was Oklahoma state. They had one guy that was over 10. Now they had a second guy that was a nine. Colin Oliver who was a freshman at 10 and a half. Brock Martin had nine. The next closest was six. It was more of a, of a team effort. Alabama is in a similar situation. Alabama had one player. They Were the closest. The Alabama had Will Anderson. They led the nation in total sacks, not sacks per game. They had one more than Oklahoma State, but they played one more game than Oklahoma State. Will Anderson had 17 and a half. Uh Fiderian Mathis had nine, and then Dallas Turner had eight and a half. The next was five and a half. No, the thing is they play 15 games. So Notre Dame would have to win a championship to play 15 games, obviously. Or no, actually, Notre Dame can't play 15 games. The, In the current format, Notre Dame cannot will never play 15 games unless they schedule Hawaii one year. So they're always going to have one more game, and even with one more game, and then two more games, Notre Dame is going to have. Unless the only way Notre Dame can even get to 14 is if they play for the title, they'd have to win a playoff game. So if they don't win a playoff game, they're only play 13 games. That's two more games than Alabama that Alabama had, and they still didn't have two guys to get to 10. So I'm definitely taking the under on that. But I'll say this: if Notre Dame, if, if if it ends up being the over. Notre Dame is going to have a an elite defense and they're going to they're going to be then playing for the title in, in my opinion. So so it's a good one. Tommy Rocks asks, this is an interesting question. We get asked a lot about this and this has been a topic of conversation on, on the Irish Breakdown channel quite a bit. So a long felt that Malik Zaire was the quarterback that should have exploded at Notre Dame. He is the one player I most believe could have could have been great but just didn't get the chance after his injury. What happened? Why did he not reclaim the starting spot? And why did he transfer? Was it that his injury was that bad, or was it that the old coach uh, the, that old coach that screwed it up? I wanted Malik Zaire to be great more than anyone in the last twenty years. Tommy, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna speak to why he transferred. That that's 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 something that only Malik should be should speak to. And he has a channel, and you can ask him that. He's on Twitter as well. You can ask him why he transferred. I'll let him speak to that. But I'm gonna speak to the other parts of what you said. It, the 2016, the way that Notre Dame handled the 2016 quarterback situation was a big reason why that team collapsed. Part of the thing that made that 2015 team so good, in my opinion, was people like to pick Malik's game apart. You know, He wasn't super accurate all the time and, and all these other types of things. But the fact is, is, I think Malik had a huge arm. He was athletic. He was more accurate than people gave him credit for. And he, he was never going to look, you know, look like Jimmy Clausen, but he was, you know, he, he was going to have games like Virginia. But then we forget that in that game against Virginia, he threw a bomb to Will Fuller for a touchdown. He he ran for, he would have been over a hundred yards rushing, if not for the injury in the third quarter, they scored a play after he got hurt to go up 26, 24, because he had just run them down into the, you know, near the red zone. And then Deshaun Kaiser comes in, hands off to CJ Procise, who runs 20 yards for a touchdown to make it 26-14. If Malik doesn't get hurt, they blow Virginia out. I mean, it, they'd run Virginia off the field. And, and that 2015 team, I think, could have beat anybody. Part of it is not just because of Malik's playmaking ability, but also Malik was a great leader for that team. The players loved playing for Malik. You know, He was a hard worker. You know, He was a guy that held people, from what I'm told, held people to a standard of excellence. Uh, and, and he was going to give you everything he had. Those are things that I've been told by his teammates and by people that were, you know, coaches and around that program. Is You know, when that team took on Malik's personality, it was a, a, a very confident group. It was a you-better-bring-it-today group. It was a group that just felt that they could really go play and beat anybody, and then, of course, there was confidence in him specifically because he could go out and make plays, and they felt like he was one of them. And then when you look at kind of when he got hurt, and he came back. I felt, I took a lot of flack for this, but I felt Malik outplayed Deshaun in the practices we went to. I thought Malik's injury had kind of forced him to be a little bit sharper as a passer. He wasn't quite as athletic as he was the year before. He was still athletic, but he wasn't quite as explosive as he was a year before, but he could still run. But I felt when he was, when, when he was in the game in practice or when he was in, in with the first group in practice, the unit just moved better. And you could see just a little bit of fire with that group. But it was also obvious from the beginning of that fall camp that that camp, that battle was being geared towards Deshaun winning it. The offense was being run in a way that was much more Deshaun friendly. You look at how the, the, it was kind of handled the first game against Texas. When Deshaun comes in, he leads him right down the field for a touchdown. Once that happened, the backup quarterback was going to be screwed, even if Malik started into the same thing. Because now you're not even just battling against Texas. You're now battling against the other quarterback. Well, now I got to do what Deshaun did. Or now I got to do what Malik Malik did if Malik would have started and let him down. And then you watch the offense that was being called with Malik in the game. It was a Deshaun-Kaiser type of offense. It was drop back and do all those kind of things. And it wasn't geared towards the thing that Malik does, the things that Malik did well. So in my opinion, it was never really geared towards giving Malik a legitimate opportunity to win that job. I think I think Brian Kelly and Mike Sanford had a, had decided that Deshaun Kaiser was the best pro prospect that they had and despite the fact that Deshaun wasn't even in the same universe as a leader that Malik was the fact that Deshaun you know, didn't have the faith of the team the way that Malik did that the coaches were going to go with that because he was the better passer and the better pro style you know the 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 pro prospect kind of thing And I think Brian Kelly's obsessed with kind of getting rid of the whole, I can't develop quarterbacks narrative. Malik was never going to be a first-round NFL draft pick, I don't think. He just wasn't – that just wasn't his game, I don't think. Maybe he would have been developed that way, but he, he didn't. And I just felt like that the players knew that Malik was the better quarterback for what they needed. They knew that Malik was the better leader. They knew that Brian Kelly had said a quarterback has to do these things to be a leader. Malik did all of them. Deshaun did very few of them. Deshaun was just talented. He wasn't a leader. Wasn't a hard worker, didn't have a good attitude, and yet he still won the starting quarterback job. And I think that That was one of the things that fractured the team. So I think that I think it was really a coaching problem. And then you know Malik, I thought made. I'm, I'm not going to speak to why he transferred, but but I never liked the decision he made to go to Florida. I always felt he should have gone to like Wisconsin or somewhere like that. Uh, so, you know, Florida just was to me a schematically a bad fit for him. But I mean, that was Malik's decision, and, and he had his reasons, I'm sure. You'd have to ask him those, but but I think that was the thing, and I still to this day, if Malik doesn't get hurt in 2015, I truly believe that Notre name could have beat anybody that year, even with Brian Van Gorders the coach. They would have beat Clemson, they would have beat Stanford, and I would have I would have put that team up against Alabama that year. I mean, Malik's eye like against Jacob Coker, come on, come on. So um, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what you said in that. So I'll, I'll answer that. And then, like I said, uh, other than that, I can't really speak to uh, why Malik transferred. You'd have to ask him that. So let's get to some Twitter questions. We have some good Twitter questions. Uh, we have one from dd 12 Without seeing a lot of spring practices, why are you guys so certain the offensive line will be able to block this year? How can one spring and one fall, set of fall practices with a new coach make that huge of a difference? Well, a couple of reasons. It's a very good question. Couple things. Number one, I think it's a very talented group. I think Blake Fisher is, is one of the more gifted offensive linemen that I has had in the last 10, 15 years since I've been covering the team. I mean, the only guy that I could point to that had just more God-given ability than Blake is probably Quentin Nelson. I think Joe Walt is is very talented. You know, he's a guy that I gave a four and a half star upside grade to. I just thought he was going to need more time to get there. Well, he's already gotten there sooner than I expected. I think Jarrett Patterson, if healthy, is one of the best interior linemen in the country. I think Zeke Carell a talented kid. I think Josh Lug is a guard, has a chance to be a good player, and there's great depth. And, of course, they have not just not one, they have they have one of the best offensive line coaches in the business at any level in Harry stand. And then, of course, they have Chris Watt, who a year ago was a Division One offensive line coach, and two years ago, from everyone that I've talked to, associated with any of the offensive linemen, was a driving force in the success they had two years ago on the offensive line. So I think all those factors to me uh, are important. I think there's a lot more experience now than there was a year ago, although the, the lack of experience excuses were overblown. There is more experience in this group now. And the unit started to play better late in the year because the talent started to take over. So when Andrew Kristofic, the way he played last year, struggling to hold on to a starting job, that should tell you about the talent that this offensive line has. So it, it's really just about the talent plus more experience, plus the fact that that talent is now being developed by one of the best in the business, and we have seen his track record. And so it's those things that that factor into why I'm confident in how this offensive line is going to be this year. I have another Twitter question from Ben Tarnowski. Is it too late for Notre Dame to get wide receiver transfers to help bolster the room? If not, are there any we are going after? If I don't know of any that they're going after, Ben. It's not too late the The deadline for 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 transfers was May first, but that was for transfers to jump in the portal and be eligible that year. There's still a lot of kids in the portal. There are kids there. The problem for Notre Dame is they're over right now, still over the 85 scholarship limit. So in order to add a grad transfer or a a, a normal transfer, they would need to lose two guys from their current roster. So that's gonna make things really tough. But it's not too late to add a receiver. And I but I don't know of any that they are recruiting. I know that they're looking, I just don't know if that's gonna work out. Paul and in Indy asks, How do you see the quarterback shaping up uh, next couple of years, even at the second string in emergency? And then we had another another question about from uh, Publius. Thoughts on Tommy Reese using a limited two quarterback system with Tyler Buckner and Drew. So we had like a lot of quarterback questions. We'll knock those out from Twitter. How do I see the quarterback room shaping up the next couple of years? A lot of it depends on is Tyler Buckner as good as we think? And will they be able to land a quarterback in 2023? Yes. It's great that they got CJ Carr in 2024, but you're not talking about a great quarterback at 21 and Tyler Buckner. And then your next great quarterback prospect is not, and, and neither of them panned out yet. Is not till 2024. That's too big of a gap. They needed a, a, they needed a guy in 2023. I'm not going to dive into that right now, but they need they need to add a quarterback there because I can't guarantee that Drew Pine is going to be on the roster after this year. He's going to graduate. If he's not starting quarterback, he may decide I got my Notre Dame degree. I want to go somewhere else and be a starting quarterback. He may decide to stay. I mean, that's the kind of kid Drew Pine is. It wouldn't shock me. If he's like, hey, you know what? I'm going to get a master's from here, be here for my team. If they need me, I could see that as well. So a lot of it really depends on the 2023 quarterback. And that's true, even if Steve Angeli is better than I think he is. If Steve Angeli pans out and he's a better quarterback than I think he is, and, and there, there were people that make that argument, then it's still you still need your 20 a 23 quarterback, in my opinion. And so there's a lot of uncertainty at quarterback, but there's also some talent. I think Tyler Buckner's incredibly talented. I I I would go to war with Drew Pine. There's no doubt in my mind. And and I don't think Steve Angeli's terrible. I've never said that. I just don't think he's the level of guy that you need to lead your team to a championship, but he's a good quarterback. He's a good, solid quarterback with some ability. And he showed some moxie in the spring, which I like. That's an, a very important part of that. Another question from Publius was thoughts on Tommy using a limited two quarterback system with Tyler Buckner and Drew. I think that only happens if Drew Pine wins the starting quarterback job. If Drew Pine's your starter, then you're just you're going to see Tyler Buckner have a similar role that he had last year, maybe, but even even more volume. That's the only way that you have a two-quarterback system is if Drew Pine wins a starting job. I don't think that's gonna happen. I think Tyler's gonna win a starting job. And if Tyler wins, you do not have a two-quarterback. You do not need a two-quarterback system. I think Tyler Buckner can throw and pass. I don't think he's just a runner. He was just used that way last year because that's this part of his skill set they needed. They didn't need his throwing ability. They needed his running ability. This year, I think we're gonna see him do both. And so that's why I think that we're gonna we're gonna see Tyler Buckner win that job and and be the guy but if if drew pine beats him out we will see tyler buckner as part of a two quarterback system there's no not no question in my mind joy boy asks how likely will tyler buckner set a program record for combined passing and rushing touchdowns it's possible but i don't know if it'll be this year i mean because he'd have to get at least 27 28 touchdowns passing and then at least fourteen to fifteen rushing touchdowns, and I believe that the the record for for touchdowns for a Notre Dame quarterback was Brady Quinn. I know he threw thirty nine touchdown passes in two thousand five. Let me see how. Or, excuse, me, excuse me, he threw thirty seven touchdowns in two thousand six. He also rushed for two touchdowns, so that would be thirty nine touchdowns. He had thirty three the year before. And I believe that pretty much shattered um, any of the records that people had before. Obviously, Tony Rice ran for a lot more touchdowns, but he wasn't a guy that that he passed like the year that Tony Rice was the Heisman runner up, he passed he rushed for several touchdowns, like a good number of touchdowns, but only passed for like two. And you look at the single season mark. I mean, Everett Golson had twenty nine touchdowns passing in two thousand fourteen. And you know, his rushing touchdowns were not that high that year. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't let me look at it real quick. He had eight, so that gets him to to thirty seven. You have you know, so Brady Quinn, like I said, had thirty nine. Jimmy Clausen didn't have any rushing touchdowns. Deshaun Kaiser in two thousand sixteen had twenty six touchdowns passing. He had eight touchdowns rushing, so that's thirty four. No, yeah, yeah, thirty four. So you're talking about thirty nine, being the record. Uh, Everett Golson was the next closest at thirty seven. And let's say Tyler Buckner threw 28 touchdown passes this year. That's a lot. He'd have to have 12 rushing touchdowns to top what Brady Quinn did. Now, if, if Tyler Buckner can get past 30 passing touchdowns, then he absolutely has a chance to break that record. There's no question about it. And and so I think I think he'd have a shot, but I'd, I'd say I'd be looking more to 2023 for that than I would for for this season. So really good questions there. And then Paul and Indy also asked, does Rocco Spindler get a starting job this year uh, and or any worries about losing him to transfer? I don't think you can ever worry about losing a guy to transfer. You have to start the best players you have. And if a guy wants to transfer, he wants to transfer. I've heard nothing about Rocco Spindler wanting to transfer. Most offensive linemen are patient kids. They understand it can take time to get to that level. And, and I'm assuming Rocco's going to have that, but I, will he have a chance to start this year? Sure. I we'll have a chance. I mean, he, he, He's a guy that's talented. They gave him plenty of opportunities with the first team in, in spring. He earned those opportunities in the spring. I, I could see him starting this year. If Josh Lug gets hurt, I could see him and Andrew Gustavik battling to slide into that lineup. Same thing with Jared Patterson. But I think for Rocco, what you're doing is you got to remember the two anticipated starting guards this year, Jarrett Patterson and Josh Lug, are both done after this year. So, you know, why would you transfer somewhere else? Because if he transferred right now, he can't play this year anyway. So wherever he's transferring to, he's going to have to sit out this year and then battle for a starting job next year. Well, that's what he'd do with Notre name. but he'd have to learn a whole new offense and and blocking scheme and new coaching and all that. You know, Rocco's a smart kid. His dad's a smart guy. They understand that. You know, you're a redshirt freshman. You still have three years of eligibility after this. Stay, battle, try to earn a number two job, and then go into the spring and you're a front runner for a starting job next year. And that would be the ideal situation for him. Josh Miller asks, what position group are you most excited about this year? For me, it's the offensive line. Just feel like every game would be close last year. Because of the offensive line woes, which group takes the biggest jump this year? O-line DB's quarterback linebacker. It's a good one. I'm, I'm going to answer. It looks like it's kind of a two-part question. What position group am I most excited about this year? I would tend to agree with you. We're just talking about my excitement, my emotion. I would agree with you. It's the offensive line. and Because it was so bad last year, I'm excited to see a well-coached offensive line again. I'm looking forward to seeing a physical offensive line again. And I think it's going to be a really talented group. As far as like, if you take away the excitement part and which one do I have the most anticipation on, it would be the wide receivers. I really want to see what that group can do. There's some talent there. How much talent? We'll find out. I think they're going to finally be coached well for the first time in, in several years. So I'm really, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing what that group can be, but I wouldn't call it excitement because there's a lot of unknowns. I'm, I'm excited to see this offensive line play. And then the second part of your question is, which group will take the biggest jump this year? And you said O-line, DBs, quarterback, linebackers. So you went two offense, two defense. So I'm going to answer my one for offense and my one for defense. I think I think we've kind of talked about the offensive line a little bit, so that's obviously, you know, I mean, that would probably be my pick for offense. But I'm going to say, I'm going to say receiver actually, because I think as bad as the offensive line was last year, I think the receiving core was worse for a number of reasons, and and so I'm going to say receiving core. I think they're going to be, I think they're going to be pretty good this year. That's my prediction they're going to be in a pretty good group this year and and they're going to they're going to do some really fun things for Notre Dame this year. So I'm going to go them secondary defensively. I'm going to go linebacker cuz I don't think the secondary was as bad as people made it out to be last year. I think the secondary is going to be good this year, but I don't think it's going to make this jump to be like this great secondary. I think it's still going to be a good secondary. And they've got to figure out the other cornerback before I'm ready to position you know either a Clarence Lewis plays better or b somebody beats him out one of those two things either work for me don't care which one but I need to see that kind of get shape out before I'm ready to start projecting a jump for the secondary I think it's going to be better than it was last year but by how much I don't know we need to see that other quarterback position cornerback position figure itself out I think linebackers are going to see a huge jump I think number one I think you're it's a multitude of things Jack Kaiser goes into his second year in starting lineup I think J.D. Bertrand shifts to Mike and him and Bo Bauer between the two of them, maybe junior two Alamaca. I love the depth there. I think J.D. Bertrand, if he wins that job, is going to be a very good linebacker. He's more athletic than Drew White was. He's a little bit stronger than Drew White was. I think he showed last year he can be a bit of a tackling machine. You know, he's got to get, he's got to clean some things up, but getting him to Mike instead of Will should put him in a better position to, to play to his strengths. And then of course, getting Maris Lewis back. Plus, you've got the incoming freshman class. I think the Notre Dame linebacking core has a chance to be really good this year. I think Maris has a chance to be a difference maker, like a, like a, a game breaker type of player. I think that JD Bertrand at Mike is going to be very productive. I think Jack Kaiser was steady last year. I think he's going to improve now that he's in year two as a starter. And then of course you have the talented freshman class plus other Bo Bauer provides depth to Mike Prince Colley. What kind of jump does he make in year two? Does he force himself on the field along with the freshmen? So the group that I am predicting is going to make the biggest leap on defense. And it's not that hard for me to say this. It's not going to be close to me is the linebacking core. Cause I think they were the least effective group that they had on defense last year. And I think they're going to become a strength of this team this year. So that's an easy one for me. Evan from PA triple one besides Notre Dame, Ohio state game in week. What is what week one games are you absolutely looking forward to watching? Well, I would talk about the Nebraska Northwestern game, but you said week one, and that's a week zero. But I am looking forward to that one. I want to see what Nebraska can do this year. But there's so many games in week one. This is going to be a great week one of college football. Um, <clears throat> you know, West Virginia, Pittsburgh. How's Pittsburgh going to be this year? <clears throat> Lost a lot of guys from last year. You know, there are they gonna be able to keep rolling? Do they fall back to, to to what they've been in previous years? And can Neil Brown get West Virginia rolling? That's a question mark. Penn State at Purdue is gonna be a Big game. I cannot wait to see that game. Purdue's really trying to this that's a Thursday game in week one. And so, so is the pit game. Penn State's trying to get rolling, right? Like they're trying to bounce back. And Purdue's trying to build on last year's nine-win team. They got to win a home game. Purdue's got to beat Penn State at home to really build on the momentum they had last year. If Penn State's gonna have a bounce back year, they need to be able to go on the road. They're a three and a half point favorite. And beat Purdue, who lost some really good players from last year's team. So that's going to be a really, really telling game. That's going to be a Thursday night game in Week One. Then you look to the Saturday games. Great games on that Saturday. That and obviously the Notre Dame game is one we're very much looking forward to. Uh, there's a couple other games that that Cincinnati at Arkansas. It's going to be a really good game. Arkansas it has built much better under Sam Pittman than I thought they would be. Uh, which you know he's he's done a very good job there. Cincinnati coming off of a playoff appearance. They get to kind of go play big boy football in the opener on the road. Can they do to Arkansas what they did to Notre Dame last year with all the losses they had? That's going to be tough. And even if they they don't win, can they be competitive? What you can't do is kind of go into Arkansas. And I know you got a lot of new guys and just get curb stomped. So are they going to be able to do that? The Oregon Georgia game uh, is going to be played in Atlanta. It's technically, You know, in Georgia, it's not a home game for Georgia, but it's kind of going to be a home game for Georgia. Very, very much looking forward to that. And, you know, just kind of how is Oregon, what's Oregon going to look like under Dan Lanning? He's going back to play his old team. You know, how does Georgia defend its national title? They're a 17 and a half point favorite over Oregon. That's a lot. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that game plays out. So uh, there's Rice USC. Obviously, I want to see what USC looks like. Utah at Florida. It's so a really interesting game. Utah is a two point favorite at Florida. So the Billy Napier career, you know, tenure kicks off w- in impressive fashion. So just some really interesting games that first week. I want to see what Texas looks like Sunday. So Notre Dame plays on Saturday, obviously Sunday, Florida State at LSU. Huge game. I'm really curious to see how this one's going to look. Obviously, there's the Brian Kelly angle. But I want to see what Mike Norvell's team looks like. I really do. I'm very curious to see what that that group's going to look like. And then on Monday, Clemson plays at Georgia Tech. Get our first glimpse of of what those two teams look like. So, man, this is going to be such a great week of college football. And then there's games that, like, aren't sexy games that, you know, I'm going to kind of nerd out on a little bit. I want to see what Arizona looks like at San Diego State. I I like what Jed Fish is doing recruiting-wise. I want to see what that looks like. Boston College opens against Rutgers. You know, they're – They only had one offensive lineman coming back, Boston College, and Christian Mahogany was a pretty good player, and then he tore his ACL this past week, so he's out. How's North Carolina going to look in the post-Sam Howell era? They start off at Appalachian State. That's going to be an interesting game for me. I know maybe a lot of people don't care about that, but I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that game. I I think that's going to be interesting. So there's some games like that. BYU at South Florida. I'm very curious what BYU is going to look like this year. I see I mentioned earlier the USC game against Rice. I mean they should dominate, but I want to see what they look like. So there's a lot of games like that too that I'm very curious to see kind of just how teams look. Memphis at Mississippi State is going to be an interesting game. Uh, that's going to be one I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing. So uh, Boise State at Oregon State. I'm really looking. I mean that's a potential big win for Boise State. Jonathan Smith is really doing something nice at Oregon State. Can he kind of kick that season off with a win? So uh, going to be some really, really great week one action. So here's here's the last question for this section. And, and I'm going to address this. This was a really good question that somebody brought up that I thought, uh, I thought it wasn't even actually asked in the mailbag section, but it was asked of me uh, and someone else on Twitter, Sean on Twitter. And I want to address it because that was a good question. It's from R. Loftus. It says, Marcus Freeman is doing, an excellent, is doing excellent recruiting. But what is he doing in terms of preparation? Is there any clue what this team will look like, or do we have to wait until the first game to really know? The easy answer is to say we, we'll have to wait until the first game to really know. But I, I do think we got a, a sense of what a Marcus Freeman look team, a Marcus Freeman led team is going to look like. And just indulge me for a second. The finish to the bowl game, the Fiesta Bowl game, obviously was bad. You blow a twenty-one point lead. You, you lose the game by, by what, two, but it wasn't really that close because you had to score late to make it a two-point game. You know, once you jumped out to 28-7, I mean, they scored the next 30 points, right, 31 points, or 30-31 points, and it just was a really ugly finish to that game. Sorry, yeah, it's 30 points, 30 straight points. And I think a lot of that had to do with there were some first game things for Coach Freeman and all that, but there was also, you know, I felt that he was kind of let's see what you got with some of the assistant coaches. And obviously they didn't step up and 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 get the job done in some instances and, and changes were made. So there's things that we don't know about Coach Freeman from an in-game standpoint. You know, was did he treat that bowl game like a normal game? Did he make the kind of decisions and 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 make the kind of executive decisions that he would have made now that he's that this he's got his staff in place that I don't know that's to me is more of what we need to see but I'll tell you this the one big thing about that game that we're not talking a lot about because it ended understandably is how it started let's not forget that Notre Dame has not been competitive in those type of games under Brian Kelly a top 10 team in a major bowl Notre Dame just is not competitive in those games They were competitive in this game, and they jumped out really fast. That Notre Dame team came out very prepared for what Oklahoma State was going to do. Now, the in-game adjustments on defense left a lot to be desired. Offensively, I actually thought they made adjustments. It's just the coaching was so bad with the O-line receivers that those adjustments didn't take. But I thought they made adjustments. But the, the, the coming out, that was a Notre Dame team that had a great game plan on both sides of the ball. It was a Notre Dame team that came out with a lot of fire. It was a Notre Dame team that came out with a lot of emotion, a lot of energy. There was a lot of confidence. They lost that game simply because they didn't have things that they could turn to on either side of the ball. And they had things they didn't even try to turn to on defense that allowed them, that kept them from finishing that game. But we saw the Marcus Freeman impact on what kind of energy they come out with now. Does that directly correlate to we now know what we're going to see against Ohio State? Not necessarily, because there was a lot of emotion and energy about him being the new head coach and those type of things where now you're, you know, you're going to be nine months into it by the time you get to 10 months into it by the time you get to the Ohio State game. But I think when you, uh, all the things that we hear about, you know, the, the work ethic, the, the, the the accountability, the way the players feel about them, how they are reacting to the new coaches. I think there's going to be a lot of energy. I think we're going to see a team that's very confident. Now, does that mean that they're going to be better? I don't know. But I do think from a preparation standpoint, I have zero doubt that this team is going to be very prepared to play against Ohio State and week after week for multiple reasons, as I just kind of mentioned. I think number one, I think these players are going to react really well to Marcus Freeman and his staff. They already are. That's something we've seen. We saw his team come out in the only game we've seen them play and come out hot early. I mean, red hot. They are a JD Bertrand miss sack in the late in the first half away from taking a 28 to seven lead in the halftime. And they do not lose that game. If, if that, and I'm not saying they lost because of JD Bertrand. I'm not saying that I'm just saying the whole sequ- sequence of events that kind of started, after that led to them eventually losing that game. But I look at it and I say, man, the energy with which they came out is something we haven't seen in those type of big games. The emotion, the preparation was something we've seen. Some Even as little as Oklahoma State's bringing this pressure under Brian Kelly, they would always kind of check to a max pro max protection situation. Instead under Tommy Reese, they went to a free release, That's dangerous because you're letting multiple guys come free on a blitz, but they had it scouted out. They knew what they were doing. They knew what the coverage was going to be. They snuck Chris Tyree out of the backfield instead of Max Proing, hit him on just a little quick pass, and he outruns the defense for a 53-yard touchdown. Love seeing stuff like that. That is is a team that was well-prepared schematically, and Jack Cohn made the check, and he saw it, and Chris Tyree got out and – and they got the ball out for a big play. So I think preparation-wise, this is a very intelligent coaching staff. That was the point I was just making. Al Golden is an intelligent football coach. Marcus Freeman's an intelligent football coach. As I said a year ago, Al Washington was being interviewed by by SEC teams for the coordinator jobs. I think this is a very, very smart football coaching staff. Harry, he stands now back at the offensive line. I'm honestly – Of all the concerns, or not even concerns, questions that I have about a Marcus Freeman-led team, because we've never seen it, the thing that's at the bottom of my I'm-not-sure list is preparation. And then right above that is going to be energy level. Those are at the very bottom of my what-am-I-concerned-about list with Marcus Freeman, meaning I'm not very concerned about them. I think we have seen at least enough to know that they're going to come out and be ready to play. Now, will they be able to execute? Will they be able to... You know, make in-game adjustments. All that's a bigger question. What what, what will his philosophy be on coin toss, going for a fourth down, two minute? All those things we still got to learn. But I think from a preparation and energy level standpoint, I think Notre Dame fans are going to really like what they see. So that's going to do it for this part of the conversation. Uh, I'm part two for a recruiting show will come out here later this afternoon. But this is part one. We break down some team stuff. Thank you for joining us. Uh, hit that like button. Actually, no, you're not. This is not gonna be on video. So you don't need to hit the like button. Uh, You're listening via podcast. I'd appreciate if you gave us a five star review would mean a lot to us help us to uh, continue to raise our score, which then gets us in front of more and more people. So thanks for joining me on the Irish Breakdown podcast.